Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Hello, Brendan here, vetgurus.com with Mark, the other half of Vet Gurus, episode 194, Friday 18th of June 2021, episode 194, and we're getting close to that 200th, and just a bit of a plug for our 200th giveaway, which is, funnily enough, closing on our 200th episode, and what we will be doing is giving away a whole swag of prizes, which we might run through a couple again shortly, and all you need to do to be in the draw is send us an email, and we've had a few more come in this week, Mark to vetgurus at gmail.com and just say hello and you're entered. It is that simple. And one of the things you can win is a Lone Star retractor device, which is a fantastic piece of apparatus. It's another pair of hands. It's a it's the assistant surgeon that you get without having to pay them and without having the complaints and without having them steal your coffee mug, Mark. It's a fantastic device. It is and a fantastic device, you. Brendan. I was going to say that um, I've been making particular use of it lately and it's just wonderful for the little surgeries, the birds, and it's more than an extra set of hands. It's like having two or three extra people hold things back. Um, but um, but I've also been using it uh, for a couple of, um, you know, just regular small animal surgeries. So it's a, uh, that alone. That prize alone makes the entry worthwhile, I reckon. The cost of the entry is worthwhile just for that, yes. Um, and, yes, I must admit that most people that end up purchasing or winning a Lone Star Retractor, they become hooked on it, Mark, is what I think. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. And another one is um, a fantastic little prize pack or a big prize pack from our friends at Specialised Animal Nutrition and that is the distributive distributor of Oxbow Australia and New Zealand products, or Oxbow Australia. And we won't tell you about their little prize pack, but there's some collectibles, is what we'll say, Mark, um, for their prize pack. And we also have a a very a very um, well sourced textbook um, from Chemical Essentials, um, a reptile textbook, which has a fantastic anesthesia chapter there, Mark. Um, I just, I was blown away once I read that chapter. I didn't learn anything, but I was blown away once I read that chapter. <laughs> and um, I think it was very poor editing. Uh, I was probably <laughs> to blame for that. Um, so we have a free copy of this um, reptile clinical um, medicine and surgery in practice or, or something like that. I should know. No, the full time, the correct title, <laughs> shouldn't I? <laughs> because I was one of the co-editors of it. But there we go. There will be that as well. And um, there will be some other things thrown in as well. So they're the three sort of prizes from our main sponsors of our podcast, which is Chemical Essentials, Oxbow Australia, 
and also Microchips Australia. So vetgurus at gmail.com, send us an email to say hello and you're entered in the prize. And speaking of emails, Mark, I think you want to chat about an email we had from um, serial emailer, um, Nick. Regular correspondent, Nick, sends us an email. Um, Hope things are going well for you, he writes. I just wanted to chime in on the guinea pig spay episode. Hamlet, that was about uh, four weeks ago. Um, I actually see what seems to be like an awful lot of uterine neoplasia in older caveys, five to eight years of age. I am pushing for prophylactic spay in guinea pigs, but not a lot of people around me are doing the same. I would venture that roughly 80% or more of the guinea pigs I spay have cystic ovaries as well. Probably some population skew compared to your population of pet guinea pigs. And um, I was talking to you before we started, Brendan, and I was saying how Nick may be correct because I I wouldn't have said that I'd looked at a lot of uh, post-mortem material in the five- to eight-year category in guinea pigs in the last 12 months, probably only five or six um, animals, um, but they were gastrointestinal problems and cancers and not reproductive issues, those ones. Um, certainly, we do see a significant number of cystic uh, ovaries in the guinea pigs, um, and I think um, that on its own is enough to justify Nick's mandate to try and desex them. Um, but um, but I can't say that uh, I've, I, um, I have seen a lot of... Uh, uh, uterine neoplasia. I wonder if that's a local genetic thing, whether the stock in... What, what's your experience, Brendan? Fascinating email there, Mark. And yes, I think fairly similar to you, surprising enough. We see lots and lots of cystic ovaries on them. And that previous episode that he was chatting about was episode 191, which was called Piggy Parts, which spoke about um, female guinea pig desexing, and that was... Went live on May the 28th, 2021. For anybody wants to look that up, vetgurus.com is where you can find it. And, yes, uh, I think I need to do the same. Look at some of the older guinea pigs and poke around inside them to see if we have um, uterine neoplasms in them. Um, I'd be interested, Nick, um, if you could fire back another email and do you, based on that um response or that um, percentage that you're seeing uterine neoplasia in older guinea pigs do you do ovariectomies or do you do the full ovariohysterectomy as your routine recommended desexing procedure for female guinea pigs and we'll get back to our listeners next week hopefully once nick replies to us on that so i mean yeah if he's saying an awful lot of uterine neoplasia in older older cavies so Mm, interesting, interesting. As I as I reported in that one ninety one, I certainly haven't seen it, um, and it's probably that I'm not looking, Mark, um, for these older ones. That perhaps that's what it is. These older ones that I haven't been doing postmortems or, or poking around on the inside of them. Yes, so I must open up more guinea pigs that um, die. <laughs> The other thing we see with those aged guinea pigs that pushes them over the edge often is um, renal disease. I was talking to you during the week about uh, guinea pigs that um, that we get to see that seem to have an um, inordinate um, proportion of them uh, getting renal disease. And um, and we came to the agreement that, um, that uh, the urine 
protein to creatinine ratio is not a very good tool. Um, it's good in other species, but not so good in guinea pigs as a bit of a guide to the extent of damage to the kidney. So, so yeah. Well, I think I think the problem there is we don't have a a validated reference range for the mark. So it may be a good tool, um, or it may not be. I, I I don't know. Have you have you dug a bit deeper on that and um, t- or not? Yes, I have. And there is some uh, initial indication that um, that there's not a correlation. Um, I, I'll I'll pull the study up, but um, they looked at um, renal damage in guinea pigs and um, and looked at the UPC in those ones, and there wasn't good. It doesn't look like there'll be a good reference range. That's the mm. the state at the moment. Did, did they talk about, or did you think about any other sort of um, indicators, like, for instance, SDMA? Um, and the potential value for that? I think, no, I didn't. But um, SDMA is such an early indicator that once we get to the stage that we're trying to see how long they've got, it's almost, if if it's going to be an indicator, I would guess it would be, you know, well, it would be ticked off as a positive. Uh, but I haven't found any information on that. Most of the literature suggests biopsy in guinea pigs is the, um, and geez. Once they've got mm. kidney disease, I don't necessarily want to be guiding my biopsy needle with the ultrasound through the abdominal wall into the renal architecture. You could aspirate the cystic ovaries while you're there and take a bit of a uterine sample, couldn't you? Two, three beats with one uh, biopsy. Let's not talk about killing anything just at the moment. Yes. Biopsy birds, not guinea pigs, yes. <laughs> Well, I'm going to jump into our first news story, Mark, unless you've got something else. Um, I did say I was going to produce a review um, shortly, and I keep saying that. Um, we will have, have a review shortly, not necessarily I, I next like, week. I, like the, I wonder whether what our listeners think of the I really enjoy the review sessions. It's a, it's a little bit of a um, you know comparison, what we think about uh, – either books or movies or equipment or whatever review. Um, yes. So I can't wait till you get one going, Brendan. What- well, I've got a few I've got a few series, as we spoke off air beforehand, um, um, television series or streaming series that we, we must review once you've watched it. And there's a couple of movies too I've seen lately that that I'll, um, I can always throw in if we haven't got any equipment to review. But, yes, I'll be very interested with listeners' thoughts on our, our review segment. I'm really excited about your first news story. Yes, yeah, study reveals. This is from the um, uh, Royal College of Veterinary Scientists Online, MRCVS Online. Study reveals dog breeds most at risk of anal sac disorders. And we did one of our, I'll look it up in a second, Mark, one of our very early podcasts, we did do a, a main topic on anal sac disease in in dogs um i'll see how far back that was shortly when you're when you're chatting about it but um the frequency and treatment of anal sac disorders in dogs has been explored in a first of its kind study led by the royal veterinary college which was published in the veterinary record it was called the vet compass trademark study aimed (laughs) to correct correct the lack of of evidence-based information on um, non-neoplastic anal sac disorders and it revealed mark that the breeds at most risk Ah, Cavalier King Charles Spaniels, King Charles Spaniels, and the Cockapoo, Cockapoo, the old Cavy. They're 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 um they, duds. They love they're to, duds. love to attract, <laughs> they love to attract disease, don't they? Um, 
Um, conversely, dogs at reduced rest are larger breed, breeds such as the Boxer German Shepherd and the Lurcher. And the study also found that brachycephalic breeds such as the Shih Tzu are 2.6 more times likely to ve- develop an anal sac disorder compared to long-faced dogs, Mark. So, and then it goes on with a, a couple of <laughs> interesting th- comments. Um and I was just amazed at the numbers here, Mark. They identified 2,372 anal sac disorder cases from a population of 104,212 dogs. So you know this, the Vet Compass, this is, the Vet Compass is a, um, a computer system um, that speaks to practice management software and harvests data. And so there's an interaction between practices that join up. But the, the wonderful thing about it, um, I, I think is that it allows these massive numbers that uh, a lot of the data that happens in private practice is never able to be amalgamated. And of course, there's going to be some potential, um, you know, um, issues with that data. But, um, but geez, it, the numbers just seem to be immense and allow for some fairly significant conclusions, I would have thought. Yes, well, some of their key findings included the fact that anal sac disorders affected 4.4% of the dogs and the risk was of problems were higher in older dogs and insured dogs. I love this, much. <laughs> insured dogs were 1.3 times likely more to have anal sac problems. Um, we won't comment on that. There's <laughs> a bit of bias going on there. 20% of dogs with anal sac problems were prescribed antimicrobials, while 12% were given pain relief. And I found this fascinating, Mark. Anal sacs were surgically removed in under 1% of affected dogs. Um, I thought it would have been much more than that. And this other one I'd found quite interesting as well. But I like your comment on this, Mark. Dietary change was recommended in 8.18% of cases with weight loss recommended in 1.14% of cases. So what are your thoughts on dietary change affecting the chronicity or the recurrence of anal sac conditions in dogs, Mark? Um, I think that anal sac disease in dogs is a complicated thing and that there are some dogs who uh, I don't think it's like a simple one size fits all. There are some dogs who, if you make their stools harder, it will make their disease better and help resolve it. And other dogs with uh, what looks very similar will actually get worse. Um, and vice versa, if you use fiber to soften the stools, some dogs are going to get better and some are going to get worse. So I think it's a useful thing to suggest a change because some dogs will get better. Um, but I don't, I think the second part of that, the weight loss is much more important. Dogs that are fit and healthy. Um, in my experience, um, tend to have fewer problems than the ones that are a bit portly and, and overweight. So yes, and that's generally, isn't it? Obviously, with 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 conditions. Um, you wanted to chat about there was something else you wanted to talk about with this article that you thought was fascinating, or have I covered the? Well, I, I the was particularly interested in, in um, the vet compass, the surgery. I was interested too. Uh, um, because that is just 1% of affected dogs end up having surgery. And I was going to mm. tell you about, um, like, we do that surgery not not infrequently, um, but 
crikeys, it's uh, first of all, um, I, every vet I know of worries about um, damaging the nerves that uh, innovate the anal sphincter and rendering the dog fecally incontinent. Um, but I've got to say that um, that I've, I've I've only ever seen one dog develop an, a long-standing nervous system problem, and that was a dog that um, I carved out an anal sac adenocarcinoma, and that dog I went a long way up into the pelvic canal to try and clear the tumour. Um, I, I, I worry, I think you've got to be careful. I'm not saying don't be careful, but for most uh, general surgeons being cautious, the risk of damaging the nerves is relatively low. Um, but I think that fear uh, puts a lot of veterinarians who are otherwise good surgeons off doing the surgery. I agree wholeheartedly, Mark. It's one of these things that we, um, I think, we're scared, we're, we're, we're terrified at vet school. They, the, the, the lecturers drum it into you that you might cause incontinence um, if you don't perform this surgery correctly. So a lot of vets shy away from performing the surgery. I've got one last and comment. Yes. Yeah, so I, well, let you finish in first. There. We haven't quite finished. <laughs> um, it was episode 12, Mark, that we um, had. Anal sac disease, anal gland disease in dogs as the main topic, which was way back, Mark, in the time machine in January the 4th, 2018. Wow. <laughs> um, and it was, the title was, title was Bottoms Up, of course. Um, so that was ep- episode number 12, that was, episode 12. Dear, so if anybody dear wants listeners, to you, you would not have any idea how much time Brendan puts into the witty <laughs> repartee that constitutes the names of the episodes and crackies on. It, it just brings light to my day each week when I figure out what name he's given our topic. Um, well, you'd be surprised that it literally only takes me <laughs> 30 seconds. <laughs> it just pops into my head, Mark. I don't. There's very, very few times when I have to sit down and, and mull it over. Um, so it just, it just pops into my head, and there you go. It shows you how scatterbrained I am. So you had one more comment on this I've got a bunch topic. more um, comments, but um, 20% of dogs were prescribed antimicrobials. I, I, I hope those dogs are having cytology done and possibly even um, uh, some. Uh, bacteriology before the antibiotics are prescribed because I think a lot of these are functional anatomic problems rather than um, infectious problems. They may end up with an infectious component in under certain circumstances, but um, I think we've got to be very careful about routinely prescribing antibiotics for most impacted anal sacs. Uh, I would, I would be. That would be one of my points. Yes. Um, and what there was one other thing I was going to say, but it slipped my mind. I'm getting a bit vague. That's right. If we come back to it, we can go back to it, Mark. We'll go back to um, my, um, I, I'll yeah, talk let's about. Let's jump onto your your main um, your topic, your news item. My one comes as no surprise to me, Brendan. My uh, story is a. Uh, um, uh, um, from the uh, physics, phys dot or physiology, phys.org website. Um, giant tortoises are found to be trainable and have long memories. Um, and I think we all intuitively, uh, would have thought that that's the case. Um, but there has been some research at the Okinawa Institute of Science and Technology and the Hebrew University and Tiergarten Schonbrunn. Maxen Strauss, 
um, they've found that giant tortoises are not only trainable but have long memories. In their paper published in the journal Animal Cognition, Tamar Gutnik, Anton Wiesenbachner and Michael Kuba described training exercises they carried out with the huge tortoises and what they learned from them. The photo, they, it sounds like they've worked with both Galapagos and Aldabran tortoises, but the photo shows a, a beautiful Aldabran tortoise, I think. Um, and what they did was um, they thought, you know, these tortoises in the wild travel long distances. They um, meet infrequently with uh, their own kind. They live a very long time, often um, a century or more. Um, and so they suspected that they needed a good memory to be able to remember their friends and the paths that they travel. So um, it, it was intuitively the case that they would find this out. They used a simple experiment. Um, they rewarded the turtles when they bit an appropriately coloured ball affixed to the end of a stick. When they chose when they bit the right coloured ball, they got their reward. Um, the researchers reported that all tortoises were able to learn this simple task um, they gave them 95 days and then presented the same sticks and coloured balls uh, again and all of the tortoises remembered their training after more than three months. Um, so, uh, And then the um, researchers came back to the zoos across Europe nine years later, tested the tortoises again, got the same result. So um, there's no doubt they can learn and there's no doubt they've got good memory once again, hardly surprising, but really interesting to know. Yes. I No, I'm not on mute. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, how's that for a, a research project going back nine years after that, Mark, and doing the same thing? You know, I'd, I'd, I would have lost the balls on the stick by then and um, have, dif have different colours um, that I'd be presenting them. Um, um, yeah, I've got nothing else to say about that one. Uh, <laughs> good article, Mark. Fun article. We'll link to it at our website. I think we need to jump into our... Our main topic, which we um, are going to cover cover in um, ten to fifteen minutes, which is virtually impossible because it's a topic that, um, well, a topic I'm going to quiz you on, Mark, and it's one we covered back way back again in episode twenty eight in April in two thousand and eighteen, avian anaesthesia. So we thought we'd just refresh this and. Um, I think if our listeners go back and listen to episode 28 after they've listened to this one, they'll probably find we haven't improved much over, <laughs> over that period of time um, from 2018 to 2021. Um, so, yeah, a little bit, bit of an overview, Mark. So I'm going to start with quizzing you on um, we're going to be punchy and what do you do about fasting? birds mark um so let's talk about routine um routine anesthesia um in in birds that are in for an elective procedure and you're telling the client at reception or as you're booting them out in the consult room that bring bring your little birdie back um in x number of days um what's your advice to them about um starving these patients and, and ditto when it comes into the surgery we generally use the uh um 
one transit time as uh, you know that for whichever species we're talking about that's our guide and um, we probably with the there's a few species where um, crop contents can be a real problem so for example the transit time for most uh, large parrots is going to be something about an hour and a half or two hours they're relatively quick um, so but for most of those large parrots, particularly macaws, um, when they're stressed, brought to the hospital, their gastrointestinal uh, um, activity will slow down. They might retain some food in that crop for quite a long time, and it would be very common for them to react uh, with nausea after an anaesthetic and regurge. Um, and bringing up those crop contents on rare occasions, uh, as the airway is unprotected during recovery, um, can be life-threateningly dangerous. So uh, it is a good question. And for most birds, uh, we'd be talking about a few hours palpating the crop gently before we knock them out. Uh, but for maybe birds like African greys and uh, um, uh, most of them are core species, we would choose a longer period of time, maybe four or five hours and really make pay attention to how much uh, material is in the crop as we knock them out. So how often have you then prophylactively removed some ingester from that crop of a bird that you've done anesthesia? Really? Uh, uh, the, the probably um, the ones that we would that we would intervene with most of the time, other birds that we, you know, we try and run a very tight ship. We try and make sure that we've got birds that have nothing in their crop. But in an emergency situation, we might have a bird that has a fracture or needs an, uh, um, a short anaesthetic so we can get radiographs and stabilise a, a, a wing fracture or something. And those birds may well, um, in that stressful situation, bring some stuff up. Um, we're always um, aggressive with making sure that we've got uh, um, some facility to apply suction to uh, clear those airways as uh, quickly as possible, swabs in um, in hemostats so that we can uh, get material in um, and swipe that area clean of any ingester should they bring it up. Um, there aren't many times that we'd stick a crop needle in and try and evacuate things. Um, probably in the rare case, so uh, probably the only sorts of examples we'd have would be those birds that are going to go to a, uh, a laparotomy. So say they had a, a, uh, um, a fibreball, a trichobezoar in the, in the um, uh, gizzard and we're going to do a laparotomy to get it out, those birds obviously are obstructed and probably have material in their crop. Um, not only would we aspirate material out with a crop needle in those birds, but we'd obviously be securing their airways with an endotracheal tube. But for birds that, um, that we're taking radiographs, you know, by the time we place the ET tube, we've probably got the films and got them awake. Excellent. So you have that bird in, it's been fasted for the appropriate length of time. What pre-medicant choices have we got for those routine surgeries especially, Mark? We've got quite a few, Brendan. Um, and mainly what the sorts of things that we would routinely be doing with most of the birds that we're knocking out. We do want to use um, uh, 
anal pre preemptive analgesia, um, and so we frequently would be uh, um, taking advantage of um, of uh, uh, um, the opiates. And probably there's been a little bit of controversy about this lately in the bird world. Um, the recept the studies that have been done in pigeons, which identify um, the kappa receptors which butorphanol is going to attach to has meant that many avian veterinarians stick, uh, if not absolutely exclusively, highly um, faithful to butorphanol as their first choice analgesic and therefore uh, as a, um, a pre-medicant. You've got to be careful with its use as a pre-med though because um, probably a little bit more than it does in small animals. It uh, has a little bit of a respiratory depressant effect, which may manifest itself as uh, as dangerous hypoventilation in recovery in particular. So you do have to be a bit careful about your doses. Um, we've probably been, um, you know, using a little bit more midazolam, um, maybe uh, dribbling some midaz into the nares of... Um, of birds uh, that are that it's um, comfortable and convenient to do so, and that probably has a greater um, isoflurane sparing effect. Um, and but of course, it doesn't have um, any analgesic effect, and we would have to couple uh, that pre medication, depending on the nature of the procedure we're doing, with some uh, analgesia maybe after the event. So. Basically, our aims for the pre-medicant are the same as other species. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> it's eerie, isn't it? It's just eerie that um, the general principles that we apply to, whether it's small animals, small mammals, small companion, uh, um, uh, exotic animals, um, the general principles are the same. We're aiming to uh, decrease the amount of isoflurane, use a multimodal approach, make sure we've got analgesia covered. And, uh, um, and um, in birds, it's the same as with every other species. Yes, excellent. Smoother induction and recovery, if all goes well. Speaking of induction, Mark, what's um, your thoughts on induction in birds and the tips and tricks regarding that compared with some of the other species? Well, it's and once again, it's a, an area that I think um, is undergoing some uh, development, uh, some changes, and probably there's some controversy and different practitioners would have different uh, um, protocols. We've largely um, been very keen to mask our birds down and we, um, we probably have, a, a, rather than cranking the mask up to you know, the ice of the vaporizer up to 5% and then winding it back as the bird goes down, we'll very regularly just uh, um, have them on oxygen for two minutes before, allow them to sort of get calm in the mask um, and then wind them up uh, half a percent every 20 or 30 seconds until we have them um, at MAC at about 2.2%, um, 2.3%, depending on the species. Um, and uh, that way we avoid the precipitous decline in blood pressure that uh, is associated with those very high pressures, uh, the higher vapour um, percentages. Um, but um, also we've been looking more and more, particularly at um, some of the birds like ducks or uh, um, intramuscular um, isoflurane, um, uh, intramuscular alfaxan, I mean, um, is something that um, uh, we've 
uh, we've been uh, experimenting with to maybe get the birds um, deep enough that we can um, intubate them uh, without necessarily having to stress them with having a mask over their face. Uh, what's the volume like of of the Alfax alone that you have it's, to give? It, is it? And that's why we're probably using it with birds that are, you know, um, a kilo or more. That um, it does make it a little bit difficult. To, the volumes are a little bit big for maybe budgerigars and cockatiels, um, and and probably the the corollary of that is that um, you know the size of my hands makes it comfortable for me to restrain those smaller birds and and feel confident that I'm not doing them any damage whereas um, you know a, a, a um, 1.2 kilo macaw or a, um, a two and a half kilo three kilo duck um, those birds are a little bit uh, more difficult to restrain manually confidently um, and so some assistance from sedation is is a little bit um, more useful. So we have that bird anaesthetised. Um, what's your tips and tricks on endotracheal tubes, Mark? Any particular brands or methods or types or sizes or, yeah, little 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 tweaks that you do in your practice that you've learnt over the years that help? There are a couple, Brendan. There's quite a few. Um, but the key one, I think, is uh, to use, um, you know, a pr- I, I find um, uh, that we do knock together a couple of, you know, MacGyver, a couple of uh, um, wide bore uh, IV catheters for, you know, maybe finches, canaries, those size birds. I worry about the dead space in those uh, very, very fine uh, endotracheal tubes, and I worry about mucus plugging them up. Um, so we often are using um, the uh, uh, the last lot we bought, I suppose, were from Cook, uh, um, and those we'd have a couple of those sorts of endotracheal tubes that um, are supported by a, uh, um, a metal spring in the silicon plastic. That's a useful thing when you're dealing with birds that might bite on the tube and cinch it and make it difficult to get the oxygen through. The other thing I find is um, having a suitable gag. Probably the most difficult thing about intubating the birds is getting over that um, over that tongue and making sure you've got a great view of the the um, the glottis that uh, the glottis sits in that little pocket behind the tongue, um, and if that's not suitably uh, depressed in the the uh, mouth, then it can be very difficult to uh, get a good view of the um, of the uh, of the glottis. So we might have um, uh, some uh, with a lot of birds. We'll use the um, the retractors, you know, the ones that hold the eyelids open. So we might use those to hold the beak open um, and yes. then use a notoscope cone to depress the tongue and get a light and vision on the glottis to slide a endotracheal tube down. What about gently grasping that tongue and pulling it forward? Do you find that helps a lot? <laughs> the, the, the glottis is very mobile and if you can get the beak suitably open, then gently drawing the tongue forward um, definitely does uh, expose the glottis and bring it closer to the opening and and put it into your field of view. So you do have to be a little bit careful with the, there's been one or two times, uh, particularly the lorikeets, they're 
brush-tongued birds where I've grasped the tongue with um, some forceps and and obviously been frustrated that I couldn't get it in and um, then caused the, the vascular tongue to bleed with uh, the forceps. So I think just being very gentle with that tongue if you are applying any tension is probably the tip I'd use. Yes. What about, um, it reminds me a bit of dragons, Mark. Um, we're trying to stabilise that, that glottis in those but in order to pass an ET tube with that really muscular-looking glottis there. And um, I often have one of the um, assistants, vet nurses or whatever, um, gently pushing upwards from in between the mandible to sort of um, stabilise it but also make it more visible there. Um, that's what it reminded me of, what you were describing. It's a good analogy. The only problem I have is that the birds that um, that uh, we're generally struggling the most with things like budgerigars, um, it's difficult to get the extra pair of hands in there to do it. So sometimes being prepared with a Q-tip or um, uh, just having all that stuff ready to go, the appropriate gags, whatever you feel comfortable manipulating the tongue with and uh, maybe a cotton wool bud to push the pharynx up a little bit um, underneath the jaw so that the glottis sticks out, all good things to do. Yes. So we have it intubated. We have it on an appropriate level of gas and oxygen, Mark. Um, what works monitoring-wise with, with your machines that go beep or not? Um, what works in birds and what do you find the most valuable if, if you're going to only choose you know, one or two um, monitoring bits of gear? It's a good question, Brendan, and the frustrating thing is that um, I don't know that that um, that anything makes me feel absolutely comfortable all the time. Um, I definitely love having a pulse oximeter um, on there. Um, I love having the Doppler um, giving me the rhythmic uh, beat of the heart. Um, I uh, we do have a catnograph, and um, uh, and I love when that works for whichever anaesthetic it works for. But I often find um, interpreting the uh, the information from the capnograph takes me a bit of time to reflect on, so it's not always the most efficient use. So I find that probably the thing that um, that I emphasise to new newbies for anaesthetising their first bird is to watch the degree of... Uh, um, the, the extent of ventilatory excursion. Um, one of the things that's really annoying about birds is that they will breathe at the same rate for a long time with inc with decreasing uh, expiratory uh, ventilatory excursions, which means they their tidal volume um, that they're shifting in and out drops um, and can drop to the point where they're not effectively ventilating um, the lungs, even though their chest is still moving, it's not moving at the same rate. So when they're first anaesthetised, making sure you can see how far that keel sternum is moving out and making sure that it keeps moving out that distance is really important. And I think you touch on something that we constantly reiterate, watch the animal, not the machine. <laughs> <laughs> Watch the animal. Um, you end up watching the machine and then the animal dies and then you'll say, hey, look, the machine's saying the animal's not doing too well. <laughs> <laughs> and it's particularly the case with um, uh, uh, once we start ventilating them, um, you definitely can be caught in a situation where 
an animal um, is still beeping away very pleasantly, um, but um, but uh, is not yeah is only breathing as a consequence of the machine and not of its um, the fact that it has any life force left in it to generate the volition. So, a one minute spiel on ventilating birds, Mark. Why and how? Well, there's a number of commercial small animal ventilators. They work exceptionally well. Um, they are particularly useful for um, uh, procedures that are going to last any length of time, and particularly for that reason that I highlighted before, that it can be difficult to appreciate relatively modest changes in uh, the excursions and maintaining the volume in the lung each breath um, helps to stabilise the anaesthesia. Um, the key thing I'd say about that in birds, uh, the hurdle that we constantly face um, is uh, when we uh, either, when we uh, um, enter an air sac. So what, if we have a, a, uh, a fractured wing where we go into the humerus, where the air sacs extend into the, um, into the bones that are pneumatized bones, or if we open the abdominal cavity and uh, get into an air sac, then we end up with a situation where the, there's no breathing, um, that the, the pressure that's measured by the ventilator to switch off the flow and allow the expiration doesn't occur because there's no seal to the uh, airway space. Um, there are some situations where this doesn't matter. If the air just, if the gas just flows through uh, the respiratory tract, um, uh, then the bird is still going to get fresh oxygen and it's still going to get uh, um, anesthetic gas, um, but it's disconcerting to have the bird not breathing and just bubbling, exo uh, you know, exhaust gas out through the hole that you're working on. So we would regularly uh, begin to uh, ventilate them artificially um, uh, if we get to that point where they're, you know, the ventilator's not um, not working of its own accord because of the open body cavity. Yes. And recovery, Mark. So, what's what's different? What's the tricky bits about recovering a bird? How do you how do you recover a bird safely that wants to flip and flap around, Mark, during that recovery? Period? Well, the recovery is enhanced by those pre medications we talked about before. Having an appropriate um, uh, um, recovery enclosure, one that's um, warm to start with, um, making sure that they. Uh, uh, um, that they are protected, they're dark, they're, um, you know, they don't feel threatened by other animals in the hospital or um, a big ugly veterinarian poking their face into the front of the enclosure. Um, they're all things that uh, we often find too that um, uh, um, rolling them up into a, um, a birdie kebab, getting a, a soft towel, um, not too heavy, but just one that applies pressure to the outside, my theory is that the birds during recovery regress to the nestling stage and so that little bit of pressure on the dorsum is a pleasant sensation and makes them feel safe and so they tend to move less and I suppose as well if there's any gentle restriction, if they go to flap and, and the towel or uh, holds the, the wings sort of in place then they're more likely to just sit there and wait until they're strong enough to move. So um, we like to put them in an oxygen-rich environment in their recovery cage. So oxygen, warmth, a towel, 
and uh, comfort. Go on, Brendan has something to say. And even even just a, a paper towel with some of those very small birds is enough, isn't it, Mark? Just just wrapping a little budger or canary or something in a little bit of a paper towel. Definitely. Just remembering that there was a bird in that paper towel <laughs> that the nurses are going around cleaning up the surgery. <laughs> Well, but there's, there's been more than one, so we've had to get um, uh, um, histopath samples out of the bin because the nurses are so efficient. So, um, but uh, most of the time, our wonderful nursing staff are uh, highly intensively paying attention to the recovery of any bird. I'd be surprised if even wrapped in a, uh, a tissue that they uh, that they went missing. And finally, Mark, we we sort of haven't touched on this as part of that whole process of anaesthetising a bird, um, including the recovery. Warmth. It is. Um, one of the things that happens to people who start anaesthetising birds is that um, is that sometimes you'll lose some. Many of the birds are surprisingly compromised uh, by the time they're presented to a vet uh, for some form of intervention. And, and even with experience, you can easily misapprehend the extent of their compromise. Um, and one of the things that will magnify the negative effects of any compromise is hypothermia. It decreases circulation, decreases, mentally obtuns them, um, and uh, and it's critical, as with our, you know, all, all our animals. But birds are uh, maintain a noticeably higher body temperature, Brendan. So the temperatures that we would be happy for our rabbits or um, uh, dogs or cats, um, they're, um, you know, uh, your average chicken's normal body temperature is just about 41 degrees, which is five degrees warmer than us and um, three degrees warmer than uh, most dogs or cats. Uh, if you were to run them, um, in a, the same environment that supports most small animals, they will feel cold. So we have to be a bit proactive about the way that we maintain their um, their body temperature during recovery. Excellent. Well, I think that's a amazing summary, Mark, <laughs> in um, 25 minutes of <laughs> avian anesthesia. Perhaps you should be um, going on the lecture circuit for universities to give avian, avian anesthesia um, notes. And I think we'll, we'll dig deeper in some of the other aspects of avian anesthesia in, a, in, a, in I'm sure, future podcasts, Mark. And certainly and, we'd um, be interested in anyone's questions, the specific aspects that people are interested in. And just think if you ask a question within the next few episodes, you not only may have your question answered, but you'll go into the prize giveaway, Mark, for the 200th episode. So it's a win-win. Win. <laughs> <laughs> and I think with that, the um, Mr. Outro's here and we will talk to you all next week. Talk to you then. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.